Welcome to this episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today I'm really excited to talk about the topic of the false protagonist. Yeah, so Bailey, this was a concept that you came up with, the idea of the false protagonist and how it could maybe apply to the wire. So why don't you tell everyone um, how you came across that and what was interesting about it to you specifically? Well, I got the idea from um, this great other podcast that I listened to called History of the 90s, which is a really fun podcast to listen to if you sort of came of age in the 90s like I did. Uh, The latest episode is on the history of Beanie Babies, which is pretty fun. But uh, around Halloween, they did an episode on Scream, which was really kicked off that teen horror movie 90s kind of thing that happened and um what they talked about was how in that movie Drew Barrymore is this false protagonist um as Casey Becker I think is her name in the movie um and basically within you know within the first 11 minutes the person who you think is going to be the main protagonist of this movie is murdered violently and uh they just talked about how it kind of sets up this idea and then there's this whole big change and you wonder well where is the story going now and I thought well this relates perfectly to the wire yeah and scream as you alluded to really um revitalized the horror genre and the filmmakers made a sort of strategic decision they knew what they were doing when they put Drew Barrymore's face on all of the marketing materials on the poster on you know she went to Um, all the press junkets and things like that, because they wanted the potential audience to think that, okay, this is going to be one of the main stars. And especially given her popularity at the time, you wouldn't expect her to die. You think she's going to make it right to the end of the movie, right? Right. And so the fact that she doesn't is kind of like, that was one of the big kind of shocking moments of that movie, I would say. Definitely. And they got a lot of heat from it in the production company when they when they saw the, the first sort of screening of it. They said, what are you doing? Like, you're you're crazy. You've killed off your main person in the first 11 minutes. And it was pretty controversial, but it was definitely like um, a very good move in retrospect. Yeah, good marketing move for sure. So the false protagonist is what that um, device is that they're using, and it does have precedent in literature and, and in other you know, film and stage and things like that, and that's what we like to talk about when it comes to The Wire. Exactly. So um, so the false protagonist, like you said, is definitely a literary technique. Um, can you tell us, like, what when we say the false protagonist, what are we actually talking about? Sure. So I'll give just kind of a basic definition. Uh, This is from Wikipedia, if anybody's interested in in reading the page. But it says, in fiction, a false protagonist is a literary technique often used to make the plot more jarring or more memorable by fooling the audience's preconceptions. That constructs a character who the audience assumes is the protagonist, but is later revealed not to be. So a false protagonist is presented at the start of a fictional work as the main character, but is then removed from the role often by killing them, usually for shock value or as a plot twist, or changed in terms of their role in the story. So i.e. making them a lesser character or a character who leaves the story or revealing them to be actually the antagonist. So that would be kind of the person that you've been rooting for all along turns out to be the villain. 
Hmm. Okay. So that's pretty interesting. And I'm assuming that since this is a literary technique that there are examples in literature. Yep, there are. So I'll, I'll allude to two here. One of them is um, from Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where readers are initially led to believe the protagonist is Bernard Marx until the introduction of John the Savage as a character, at which point it turns and entirely focuses on John. And full disclosure, I have not read Brave New World. But I did read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. And I would say that To the Lighthouse is another example because the entire first, um, probably one third of the book focuses or um, kind of directs all of the narrative through the character of the mother. And then the mother dies. And the pace of the book, the tone of the book completely changes. So Hmm. I would say To the Lighthouse uses a false protagonist as well. Interesting. Well, and I think in some ways, maybe even The Great Gatsby is a bit of a false protagonist in that the book is called The Great Gatsby, but the story is not told from Gatsby. The story is actually mostly told from the the main character, and he just sort of observes Gatsby. Yeah, Nick Carraway. And he is a classic, unreliable narrator. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think probably the unreliable narrator is a bit of a variation on the false protagonist. We could, I think we could say that um, for the way that you get the rug pulled out from under you, um, what you think you can trust or what you think is being uh, relayed to you through the narrative turns out not to be true. Uh So um, another example of that might be um, Chief Bromden in the book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because Uh Chief Bromden, um, who in the movie adaptation is actually not kind of the narrator or the lens, but in the book he is. And he is in this, um, at the time they would call it an asylum. And so some of what he describes, we know we can't trust it because Mm. this is someone who um, has mental illnesses that are affecting their ability to perceive reality. Uh, So that's kind of a false protagonist in the way that you don't know if you can trust what's in front of you. Okay. So you sort of said that the false protagonist literary device is used to make the story more memorable or to um, kind of shock the reader. So how is the false protagonist valuable? Well, it's like we said with Scream, um, it's, it's a device that will unsettle the reader or the viewer. And uh, in horror genre, that's uh, really valuable. So um, in the history of the 90s podcast episode, um, which we both listened to, they talk about Psycho as being a bit of a precedent um, for mm-hmm. screen because the Marion Crane character dies relatively early in the movie and the rest of the film is kind of about solving that crime. So the female protagonist who we think is going to lead us through this story kind of leaves leaves early on and um, I would say that kind of what it does is make you think that nothing is solid nothing is secure and you could lose anyone at any time so it's it's really like an unsettling device okay so let's bring it to the wire now um definitely this is a technique that David Simon used a number of times why do you think David Simon decided to use the false protagonist so often in the wire Well, I think definitely it's uh, part of the show's commitment to realism. 
And we've talked about how The Wire doesn't serve the desires of the audience uh, in any way. So the language that they use is not really very accessible unless you're sort of in the know of, uh, you know, the, the speak of the game. Um, and also it doesn't give us plot lines that are comfortable. So our favorite characters aren't going to be around for the duration of the series. And this is what still gets me in the heart about Frank Sabotka. Um, mm-hmm. because we like mm-hmm. him and we wanted him to play, but, uh, that is, it's someone we lost. And so I think when the audience to the wire is confronted with the al- reality that we can lose anyone at any time in the show, that's kind of mirroring the reality that residents of Baltimore face where, you know, your best friend might get got tomorrow. Um, like mm-hmm. the way that Bubbles loses Johnny or, um, you know, there's innumerable examples of that in The Wire. Exactly. So in The Wire, I mean, we start by losing D'Angelo, who basically we assume from season one, episode one, is is kind of like the story is almost told by D'Angelo or he's intended to be. He and McNulty are kind of created as our main people. Um, do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, I remember when D'Angelo was killed and I was just so shocked, but do you want to talk a little bit? I think the reason why I was shocked is because in a, I've never watched a television show where the person who I think is the main character of the show is killed basically right away in the context of like the, the grand scheme of things. So what was television before the false protagonist? Yeah, you bring up a really good point about D'Angelo and the fact that when D'Angelo dies, it's it's almost unceremonious in a way. The, you know, he dies and then they just move on. Um, because television before the false protagonist, especially in serialized dramas or even sitcoms, they rely on star power to attract viewers. Mm-hmm. And the actors are relying on the series itself to kind of sustain their careers. So what you would expect is this symbiotic relationship between the show and the actor where they're going to stay on the show as long as they can, especially if they're a fan favorite. So if someone's leaving a show or if an actor is going to exit, it's either because they became super famous to the point where they're going to go on and do their movie career. And we saw that with George Clooney in ER mm-hmm. or they get fired for uh, one of several possible reasons. And we saw that with Isaiah Washington in Grey's Anatomy after he used um, a slur and uh, and then was fired. So they had to find a way to get him off of the show. Right. So, yeah. So the way that that would work and, and um, you would kind of hear through the press, like if someone was going to be leaving a big show, but they would make it a big plot point. Like when someone, one of the most famous actors on a serialized drama is leaving, that means usually they're going to die or they're going to leave in a dramatic fashion. Mm-hmm. And the the um, producers or the writers would kind of leave that for either a season finale or some other type of cliffhanger um, that keeps people watching all the way through the season. And also because actors are generally on contracts that revolve around one or more full seasons. So it makes sense that if they're going to leave, you get rid of them at the end of a season. Right. Okay. Yes. Otherwise you have to do a real storyline around it. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so Bailey, tell us who some of the false protagonists are over the course of The Wire as a series, because I think that we have multiple. And so let's go through some of them. Okay, so I mean, definitely D'Angelo is our first one that we see um, when he's strangled as a plot of uh, stringers. And then I think another one is Stringer, right? We, we definitely don't expect to lose Stringer in the third season. Uh, and he goes. Of course he got- yeah, can I pause you just for a second to talk about D'Angelo? Yeah. Because what you got me onto the wire. I didn't really have a lot of context. I just started watching this show thinking it was a show like any Mm -hmm. other. And so D'Angelo being this, as you said, what we think is the protagonist or the main character, when he started getting strangled in the library, I kept waiting and waiting for the moment that he kind of like does an elbow jab Mm -hmm. backwards or something like that, like some kind of fist fight to get out of this um, this situation of like life threatening violence. And I thought, okay, any second now he's going to like punch backwards and escape, but he doesn't. And I was really shocked. Like I did not have any emotional preparation for that. Absolutely. And I think, and actually when I think more about it, I mean, there are other characters who are more, um, sort of side, like I would never say that Wallace was a protagonist per se, not the main protagonist, But even then, I was shocked when somebody so close to everybody was killed. But it's true. When D'Angelo is killed, you think, where is the story going to go without D'Angelo? Like, this whole story exists around D'Angelo. Yeah, completely. And that was one of the major thoughts I had is, well, where do we go from here? Exactly. Um, And I think you kind of just mentioned Stringer, but that thought even more prominently when we lose Stringer is, oh gosh, where do we go from here now? This is the person McNulty's been chasing for three seasons. Exactly. Um, And then of course that brings us to McNulty, who actually really by the fifth season, I mean, he's, he's a protagonist, but he isn't, you know, the story isn't really built around him. And in the same way that in, in season one, we feel, and even much more in season three, we're like, okay, this, the, ultimately the story is about McNulty chasing the Barksdale gang. But by the end of season five, that is not yeah. at all what the story is about. Yeah. And um, McNulty in season four goes back to being a beat cop. And so we see very little of McNulty at that time. And so the person we thought was our main entry point, at least on the police side, is no longer. But um, what we said about after Stringer's death, where do we go from here? I think that that's really important to um, to unpack a little bit, just because I think that's what McNulty was feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. When he was a Stringer, it's where does McNulty go from here? What's his purpose now? And um, I don't remember who asks Kima. I think it might have been bunk asks Kima oh what did McNulty say or how did he react and Kima says like he was kin yeah I think it's Lester that she's talking to in that scene oh okay Lester sorry Mm -hmm. um but yeah so Kima says he reacted like Stringer was kin because he had wrapped his entire existence around Stringer yeah exactly Uh, And what's interesting, actually, which brings us to another false protagonist, is actually Avon. So we're led to believe in season one that Avon is the leader of this gang, 
But by season three, Avon is is peripheral to uh, Stringer Bell, which again, I think is reflective of the actual um, power dynamic that we're supposed to sense between those two. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, him being incarcerated and becoming a peripheral character reflects how he's become peripheral to the operations of the Barksdale organization. And um, it it reflects the tension, I think, perfectly that, you know, now Stringer and then eventually kind of no one in Barksdale land, but they are running the show, not Avon. Yeah, absolutely. And they're running the show in kind of multiple interpretations of that phrase, right? Yeah. And then, of course, we get to Frank, Frank Sabatka, who... Again, you know, the season, season two is built around Frank. Yep. And, and I think that's why some people maybe kind of think of season two as um, either superfluous or not as connected to the other seasons is because it's like, here are all these new people that you introduced and we don't see them again for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, whereas at least uh, the other characters that we meet thread through the other seasons, but Frank dying. And then we really don't see the port folks again. I think people struggle with that of like how to reconcile season two with the rest of the show. That's true. Also, it was just heartbreaking. There's, there's that to consider. Absolutely. And I think one other false protagonist in some ways, and, and perhaps he's not exactly a false protagonist. Maybe he's the opposite of a false protagonist, which is that he's peripheral and yet uh, very strong is Brother Muzon. Yeah. So expand on that a little well, bit. Well, you know, I think we only see Brother Muzon in maybe six episodes in the whole series, but he plays yeah. like a pivotal role in a lot of the storylines, I guess, particularly obviously with Killing Stringer. And I think maybe what's interesting about that and, and to the point of how Omar is eventually killed is that these sort of random peripheral characters end up killing one of our main protagonists. So maybe they're not a false protagonist, but it's, it's how the false protagonist is killed. Well, no, I think, I think you're right in a lot of ways about him being a false protagonist, because remember what we said when we did the definition of it is that it can be a protagonist who um, reveals themselves to be the antagonist. And brother Muzon gets brought down from New York by the Barksdale organization Mm -hmm. They say, bring the muscle down, get Brother Muzon, you know, let's get our territory back uh, or like get Omar out of the picture. And so Brother Muzon is meant to be someone who is um, helping Avon and others. But actually, he reveals himself to be on Omar's side after several twists of fate and is the one who kills Stringer. So I I would call that a false protagonist. Yeah, definitely. And And it's interesting that he, of course does survive a, a, a gut shot, whereas other folks who are these main characters do not survive in those same kinds of ways. Yeah, the character that you think is expendable, actually, they save him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, okay, so those are some of the examples of the false protagonist. What role does the false protagonist have in the broader sort of literary uh, world? Sure. So um, we have talked on this podcast about various schools of literary theory, post-structuralism, new criticism, things like that. So 
I think when we're talking about the false protagonist, we should bring up the theory of affect. And theory of affect is uh, a way of thinking about literature. And I'll give a, a definition here. This is from Oxford Research Encyclopedia. Most readers probably take it as self-evident that literature is inseparable from emotion. Poems memorialize love and grief. Stories elaborate on the rage of battle, the shame of defeat, or the guilt of sin. Readers pass through versions of these feelings while perusing a book or watching a play. They also experience respect and awe, flip pages, or inch forward in their seats due to suspense, or relax into a delighted experience of beauty at a phrase or scene. And then later, beyond treating different theories of emotion, an account of literary affect needs to consider the various possible locations of emotion in literature. These begin with the real people involved, authors and readers, but they extend to implied authors and implied readers, as well as wholly fictional persons, such as narrators and characters. Emotion bears also on scenes and sequences, both the sequence of events as they actually occur in the story and the sequence of events as they are presented in the plot, which may, for example, reveal the outcome of events before revealing their causes. So um, just to sort of um, synthesize that a little bit, the idea behind the theory of affect is that it's wholly concerned with the emotional impact that a work of literature has on its reader. And we did an episode, this was probably several months ago, on um, theater of cruelty and theater of the absurd. Mm -hmm. Those genres would be ripe for analysis through theory of affect because they are about how a stage play or, or some other production is viscerally affecting the viewer. And what do we feel? What are our emotions um, when we're experiencing it? Hmm. So um, the Oxford Research Encyclopedia goes on. As the references to negative emotions, such as grief, already suggest, sometimes the emotional appeal of a literary work is apparently anomalous. Tragedy rewards us even as we weep compassionately a result that many writers have found almost paradoxical. In fact, there are two problems here. First, we grieve over fictional events, thus events we know to be unreal. Second, we enjoy experiencing that mm -hmm. grief. And so I think that's really important with The Wire is that, yeah, why, why do we like this show that in a way is kind of torturing our emotions? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but... Bailey, tell us about why we feel so much grief so consistently across the wire. Well, you know, it's interesting because, like you've said, we know that it's a fictional story and we're experiencing the grief. But I think what's interesting about The Wire um, and maybe why it's so resonant is that, yes, it is fiction, but it's also very much rooted in reality. So, you know, is it about you know, does this show move us to do something? Does it move us to act? Um, but right. some of the, I mean, I think obviously we lose characters and, and all pretty much most, if not all of the characters that we lose, um, we do feel deeply connected to. So for example, when we lose Wallace, the plot has um, built sort of this childlike innocence around him. Um, and we see yeah. him, uh, as with D'Angelo, there are just two men who are not cut out for this game. 
Um, and the, the plot goes to great extents to help us see that. So I think in the way that we lose Wallace when we lose D'Angelo, we experience a lot of grief in that they weren't meant to lose in this game. They were supposed to get out. They were supposed to be free. They, they, they had a destiny beyond the game, and yet they're lost too soon. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that goes back to what we've said before about the wire doesn't serve the viewer and it doesn't serve our desires. Because if, if it did, then of course the two guys who didn't want to be involved in this game, who had higher aspirations, you know, we would see Wallace go out to do the grade nine, even though he's 16 years old and uh, succeed and overcome. Right. But there's, we don't, we don't see that. Um, and related yeah. to them, though there's not actual death, we still lose Dookie in a similar way. Um, you know, yeah, Dookie really. again is, is created as a character, I think really to help us, um, or to make us feel like there's hope here. He can get out of it, but he doesn't, uh, at all. Yeah. Well, and speaking of not getting out of it, it's, that's like the story of Frank, right? Like at that last, or I guess it's the penultimate mm-hmm. episode, they're so close to getting everything tied up in a neat little bow. You know, Frank is going to identify the Greeks and everyone's going to get arrested. And then this one whisper of, oh, they're going to lean on mm-hmm. that witness unravels yeah. everything. Exactly. And, and I think just the fact that we watch that as yours and we're like, no, like, don't yeah. do it. And then another character who I think, I know Frank hits the hardest for you. I think the hardest loss for me in the whole series was Bodhi. And what was interesting yeah. about Bodhi is that you you actually don't like him at the beginning. He's highly unlikable. And maybe in the way that the false protagonist goes from protagonist to antagonist, Bodhi goes from antagonist to protagonist. He... Yeah, you know when when he's we see a glimmer of humanity when he can't pull the trigger trigger to kill Wallace, um, but yeah. really then as the as the show progresses, we see him um, as almost like a figurehead of nobility. Like he wants to uphold the rules of the game, and the game must be played in in that way, um, which I think is similar to Omar, and that's why Omar is also such a hard loss because. It's just a kid who shoots Omar and it's in, it's the back. You don't see it coming. It's so anti-rules, you know, and, and Omar is the character who is the, the one who's always talking about how you must abide by the rules of the game. Yeah. A man must have a code and then he dies by this um, just nonchalant, unceremonious bullet to the back of the head in the carryout and he deserved more glory in yeah. a way than that. It's deeply unceremonious. Is that a word? Yeah, it really is. So yeah, I think I think that's the word. But um yeah, so what's what we're feeling there is like this um this affect of grief and we never really are able to shed that over the entirety of the series because someone always kind of just died or something bad just happened. And so as much as the show is just extremely enjoyable for so many reasons, it's also 
painful and it's like we like that pain. It's true. And and we know as soon as D'Angelo dies, we know no one is safe. And what's interesting about that is that you're by the fifth season, you're almost lulled into a false sense of security thinking, I think Omar might be safe. You know, Omar jumped off a balcony and disappeared like like Spider-Man, as Marlo says. And yet he is not safe. And the only the only character I can think of that kind of goes out in a quote-unquote blaze of glory in the way that it should be is Stringer, who dies in this very sort of spaghetti western scene of a shootout standoff kind of thing. Um, but even yeah. then, at that point, you're sort of thinking, well, he's trying to get out of the game. Like, can he can he pay his way out of this? Like, is there... Yeah, that's what I was just thinking is like, yes, it's the blaze of glory, but it's when he's out of the game or almost out of the game. And and I don't think we should discount the moments of grief and affect that are not related to uh, death necessarily, or at least not death of a human. Like the the grief I felt when Stringer got yeah. rain made, I, I pained yeah. for him. And then there's also, of course, when Ziggy's oh, duck dies. Gosh, the duck. Well, and again, when, when, um, I mean, the whole situation, how Bubbles has to turn to the hot shots to get rid of the bully and ends up losing Sherrod as a result. I mean, that was probably one of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So... We've also talked a lot about the American dream and the wire. And what you've described to me with the affect theory is maybe related to the American dream. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I think if we're talking about affect theory and death in particular, maybe there's this overarching theme of death of the American dream in the wire and the affect that that death has on us um, more metaphorically. So um, I'll turn to an essay. This is March, 2019 in the New Yorker and the essay, we'll put it in our show notes. It's called Affect Theory and the New Age of Anxiety by Hua Xu. I hope I pronounced that all right. Um, It's a review of Lauren Berlant's book and the book is called Cruel Optimism. So she writes, we like to imagine that our life follows some kind of trajectory, like the plot of a novel. And that by recognizing its arc, we might, in turn, become its author. But often what we feel instead is a sense of precariousness, a gut-level suspicion that hard work, thrift, and following the rules won't give us control over the story, much less guarantee a happy ending. For all that, we keep on hoping, and that persuades us to keep on living. I mean, that clearly uh, encapsulates Mm -hmm. some of the wire. But um, she goes on later in the essay. The persistence of the American dream, Berlant suggests, amounts to a cruel optimism, a condition when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your own flourishing. We are accustomed to longing for things that we know are bad for us, like cigarettes or cake. Perhaps your emotional state is calibrated around a sports team, like the New York Knicks, and despite hopes that next season will be better, you vaguely understand that you'll be let Mm. down anyway. So. This idea of calibrating your emotional state around something, um, especially something you know is bad for you, I think 
definitely encapsulates yeah. McNulty. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, name? absolutely. I think, you know, we talked about this in our very first episode ever, which is McNulty along the hero's journey. And, you know, we want McNulty, he is the good guy, right? In the in this whole, whole scenario, he's meant to be the the hero. And yet he continually lets us down every time. Yeah. And he, he longs for the things that are bad for him, like working major crimes or working homicide. Uh, we see that sort of, I guess it's... Um, season two when he's riding the boat it's like okay this would be good if he wanted to get Elena back but he longs to work cases and that's what gets him drinking so hard and you know going around with women and and it's um it's like he he desires those destructive tendencies within himself yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think the second half of the paragraph I read uh, parallels our feelings as viewers. So we calibrate our emotional state around characters we know are in jeopardy, especially after losing D'Angelo. Um, we know that no one is safe, but we we um, we hope for them and, and then we lose them through the false protagonist device. Exactly. So, so um, I'll just, I'll, sorry, I'll just read a little bit more of the essay just because it is important um, to this idea of uh, longing for the things that are bad. Um, she writes, it's like an asymptote, moving toward but never arriving at the point of convergence. This is, of course, the geometry of cruel optimism, the endless chase for a destination you'll never reach. It's tiring work. When writing fails, the relation of word and world it spins out like car wheels in mud, leaving you stranded and tired of trying. So um, this idea of the endless chase for the destination you'll never reach, I think we see that a lot with um, the detail. You know, they're always just kind of behind the curve. They almost crack the case, but then they never really get mm -hmm. there. Um, and then Frank Sabatka on the port as well, when it's whether it's dredging the canal or draining the grain pier or whatever it might be, there's this chase for that destination of um kind of achieving the american dream or achieving that goal that they've set up in their mind but they'll never reach it and that's the cruel optimism of the well, wire that's and i think of stringer bell in that way too you know how much money does it take to get out of the game and that's what he he keeps posing the question to avon but one wonders if he's Avon is a reflection of himself where he's actually asking himself, when do I walk away from this? When is it enough? Yeah. And um, when it gets to season five, do we think McNulty, for instance, is tired of trying? Also, I should correct myself. The last passage I read was actually from Lauren Berlant's book, not the essay. Right. But anyway, do you think McNulty by season five is kind of tired of trying? Is that why it gets a little bit ridiculous? Well, I think so. I mean, at that point... Um, when he's concocting this serial killer, it's, you know, anyone with any sense, you don't have to know the legal system at all to know that what he's doing is career ending. And I think yeah. what's maybe the most painful thing to watch about that is that in some ways we kind of expect it from McNulty. We've, we've seen over the last five seasons that he is a man without respect for 
the system. And he, you know, as Lester says, you know, he's the one, he's his own worst enemy or whatever. But when Lester joins him in this and, you know, I guess like Lester lets us down because in the same way that Omar has been the champion of the rules of the game, Lester has been that counterpoint in the detail where he is always the voice of reason and he is always the one um, who's making sure that they follow every, all the pieces matter, right? And then, yeah. And we see him being a mentor, yeah. um, but I mean, Lee Prezluski and some of the others like Sidner, for instance, but then he completely undermines that, that sense of being the sort of compass for the rest of exactly. the detail. And so I think what this leads to me then is by the end of it, you're sort of just hopeless. You want to end yeah, on a good totally or happy note. And so another passage here on affect theory says that other affect theorists noted that amid a sense of dawning futility, many people seem to derive their greatest pleasure from making others feel bad. Disaffection and disillusionment are contagions we can spread ourselves. So maybe McNulty is that um, figure that's spreading this contagion of disaffection, disillusionment. I think we see that in even in season one when he doesn't want to do hand-to-hands. He doesn't want to do rip and run. He wants to do mm-hmm. the case proper. And then he spreads this kind of like bad attitude and that's what puts him um, kind of against Daniels in the beginning. But then again in season five to Lester spreading this disillusionment um, of nothing exactly. really matters. Well, and that question of what is enough is brought back in season five and season four where, well, no, it's mostly season five, but you know, all throughout the series, we see them say like over time is what gets cases made. And, you know, cases go from red to black by way of green. And in the end, um, you know, they're not getting paid their overtime. The police budget is cut in order for the schools to survive. And again, it's asking, well, when is this enough? When do we get enough here? yeah, and we never do. It's it's the asymptote that they alluded to in the essay is that you can draw ever, ever, ever closer, but the two points will exactly. never connect. And I think the final scene of the final episode of the final season is that it may as well just be a uh, sort of scene of asymptote, right, where we see the cycle starting all over again. So Dookie is bubbles and uh Greg's is McNulty and and yeah no we there is no resolution yeah um yeah it's a it's a great point we've we've alluded to that about this kind of renewal of we will never get there and that's what this recycling of themes and characters means so um Berlant, Lauren Berlant later wrote in Cruel Optimism her book the political depressive might be cool, cynical, shut off, searingly rational, or averse, and yet, having adopted a mode that might be called detachment, may not really be detached at all, but navigating an ongoing and sustaining relationship to the scene and circuit of optimism and disappointment. And so I think let's bring that idea back to David Simon, uh, as creator of The Wire, this um, idea of, or like kind of maybe persona of cool, cynical, shut off, 
swimmingly rational, averse, mm-hmm. maybe detached, but then truly not detached, just navigating and dealing with this ongoing disappointment of not having that asymptote ever reach, you know, the line, whatever that might be, the American dream or fulfillment or something like that. If you look at David Simon's Twitter feed, which I mean, we follow him and you all should, it's, it's often fair to call him sort of a cool cynic, definitely searing, maybe detached. Well, isn't his but handle AO Despair? Uh, AO yeah. Despair, yeah. So Bailey, I know you follow him too. Like, would you say that he is kind of navigating that sustained relationship to disappointment uh, with the wire or, or what's, what's going on there with affect theory and David Simon? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so for sure. I think, um, you know, and more and more, we won't get political here, but you know, in this political climate more and more, I think we we need that level of um i guess disconnection almost or you know if we if we were all hoping and and being optimists i don't know maybe we would be in a constant state of letdown and and so as a as a self-preservation technique we all are slightly disaffected and disconnected and and yeah it's a mode of self-preservation yeah mm-hmm. completely agree Okay, well, so that's been our analysis of The Wire and the False Protagonist. Um, Yeah, and affect theory, which um, we think it applies kind of all sorts of places. So if people have thoughts about affect theory in The Wire. Yeah, you you can reach us on Twitter at at Rewired Podcast. Or you can email us, podcast.rewired at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you and and tell us what you... Maybe tell us your first reaction uh, when you realize that the false protagonist, D'Angelo, was was out. Tell us. Yes, I'd love I'd love to hear what people felt and expected uh, yes. during that library scene. Um, okay, well, and we'll catch you next time. Be down in the hole.